1: Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. We did not finish last week's message, so we're going to continue from there as we are in verse 3 and 5 of 1 Peter. The message of 1 Peter is simply this, how to handle suffering as a Christian. The answer, Peter writes, is hope. God gives us hope in the midst of our suffering. One teacher writes that First Peter instructs us that God's people are a misunderstood minority living under the rule of a different king. And the persecution often offers believers a chance to show the generous love of Jesus. And he's going to use uh, his writing, this first letter, to show how we can endure suffering to the glory of God and for the good of ourselves and for the glory of Christ as he is being witnessed. In today's passage... Peter lifts up ups, praise to God for his great mercy in saving us. So what I'm going to do, for I know many of you were not able to be here last week, and what I want to encourage you is we do have uh, our messages on our website, orangevilla.org. You can always go there and get them, but I'm going to give a quick review just so you're kind of caught up with us. Let's look at this passage here. It's 1 Peter chapter 1. Looking at verse 3, let us look at that once again, where Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And Father, we come to you and we thank you for this passage of scripture so rich, Father, that we have to continue through this letter and through this message today. I pray that you would open up our minds and hearts, Father, to receive what you have. Give us wisdom to know the difference between your truth and your word and just my mere opinion. And Lord, to give me wisdom, Lord, to speak in such a way that lifts up the word and not myself or my own thoughts or how I might interpret him in some special way outside of what your scripture has. And I just thank you for the opportunity to speak. And Lord, may you just give us uh, your spirit that we may respond to his holy work this morning. We praise the name of Christ. Amen. So quick review. Peter is calling the elect exiles to praise God for he is worthy of being praised or worthy of being commended. Peter here is writing of the worth of God. He is worshiping as he's writing this letter, as he begins this body of letter, by commending that God is worthy to be praised. And we talked about we are to be praising God in the midst of suffering. Why? Why? Because he says of the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, there is a profession, there is a confession right there. When we say that, that he is God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we're saying that they too are one. And we looked at that passage of scripture and how that is the profession, the confession of Peter, which puts us in direct opposition to the world. To say that Jesus is Lord, that there is one God, sets us up in direct opposition to many who would proclaim that something else is God, usually beginning with our own selves and our own desires and our own passions. So we see that that confession puts us in the middle of a hostile world that is hostile to our faith. It is this confession that makes us Christians. But then he goes on to say why we should praise God. And that's according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again. And we spent much time on that phrase. And I want us to understand it real quickly once again as we look at why in the world would we need God's mercy? If we were to look in the mirror and look at each other, we think that we're okay, right? We look in and we say, hey, there's nothing really wrong with me. We look at each other. The world looks around and says, well, there's something wrong with him. There's something wrong with her. But for me, I have a few foibles, but a few hang-ups. But you know what? I'm really okay. Why do I need God's great mercy? The Bible tells us that none is righteous, no, not one that none understand that no one seeks after God. And Ephesians says we were dead in our trespasses and sin in which we once walked, following the prince of the power of the air, that we were sons of disobedience. Now this is not how many of us would describe ourselves or our loved ones or even our little children as they grow. We would not call them, maybe disobedient sons, maybe that. But for the most part, we would not think of a baby as someone who is in rebellion against God, but yet scripture tells us even from that little time we are. And then in Titus, we were again dead in our trespasses in which we once walked, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. We need God's mercy because what scripture tells us is that we are in great need of God's mercy, and I'll share with that again here in a little bit, a little bit more in detail, is that the human condition is one in sinful rebellion against an almighty God. But we were not left with just those phrases. We were left, as we saw, a great word, a small little word, the word but. A conjunction that just hangs on and then tells us that God was rich in his mercy. Even though we were dead, Even though we were in sin, even though we didn't seek after God, God made us alive. In that we see that he demonstrated his love towards us and that he caused us to be born again. I think one of our songs this morning put it in a very aptly way. There was nothing within me that would ever desire God. There is nothing in you that would ever seek out God and desire God unless he had come and he had Interacted with us and engaged us and enlightened our and illuminated our eyes. We learned that our salvation is initiated by God. Yes, it is we believe, but we only believe because we have been born again. To believe in God and believe in Jesus Christ is the evidence of one who's been regenerated. And we see that it was a privilege and a joy to be chosen by God and that God's kindness, His mercy, is meant to lead us to repentance. And when we return and we repent of our dead works and put our trust in God, our salvation, then it gives us some great benefits. Because not only is it according to His great mercy that we see that there were three reasons to praise God for His mercy or three benefits, and you'll see these here. We went over two of them last week. The first one, is that we praise God for a living hope that is based in Christ's triumph over the death. And we always talk about biblical hope. Biblical hope is a confident expectation that God will do as he says he does, that he'll be faithful to his promise in contrast to the world, which is a dead hope, which is more of a wishful thinking. I I hope that I get a new job. I hope that I win the lottery. I hope that my ship will come in. I hope that I'll get that promotion. That's a worldly hope that's not based in anything but in our own desires and passions. Whereas our living hope, the fact that we have salvation, is based in the fact that Christ died and rose again on the third day. And the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, he says, will also give us new life. And that where he is, we shall be with him. So we have a living hope. The second is we praise God for an inheritance that is eternal. As we look at this world, we look at many of the things that we have won and lost, many of the things that we have bought and then see decay. And we wonder sometimes, is everything about life just about attaining something new? The Bible tells us that we have a home that is imperishable in the fact that it never perishes, that it has no out-of-date expiration. It's undefiled, meaning that sin is not there. There's no way to taint it or tarnish it. And then it's unfading, meaning that the glory is forever. It is for eternity. And that brings us now up to speed in a quick way. I want to go to point number three of why we should praise God. What is it about His mercy that lifts us to praise Him even in the midst of our suffering? Even when we're struggling with pain? Even when life is difficult. And that third one is we should praise God for a salvation that is secured. You and I must realize that our salvation is secured. In verses 4b and verse 5, Peter writes that this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. And this is going to be, uh, we're going to explode this a little bit more, but we see that we don't have it yet. It's somewhere safe, kind of like a safe deposit box. We put things that we want to, to keep, things that we'll need in the future. And so we see that in his mercy, he has not given it to us yet, but it's something that is being kept in heaven for us, who by God's power, and here's the key verse we want to see in verse five, who by God's power are being guarded through faith, for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I'd like to take the rest of this time that we have to look at that verse. Here is a verse full of wonderful truths and promises. Our salvation is both kept and guarded. And one day, here's the promise of God, it will be revealed. Now the word who there is who is being guarded is referring to those that God has shown mercy to. It's it's us, the elect exiles, that he's writing to, the children of God, the vessels of mercy. What Peter is telling us is that we are kept and guarded by, and this is important, by God's power, not by our own power, not by our own will. But one might ask, who are we guarded from? Is our salvation at risk? Can we lose our salvation? Can it be taken from it? Uh, Why does it need to be kept and guarded? Is it something that is at risk? Can it be lost? Well, I want to share with you three things in which our security, our our salvation is kept and secured. The first we must recognize is that you and I, as Christians, are guarded from God. Now that sounds like a weird statement, but let, let, let me say that once again. When it says, who by God's power are being guarded through faith, he's saying that we're actually guarded from God himself. We are actually rescued from God's judgment and wrath. In chapter 4 of this letter, Peter will warn that those living in sin will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Peter charges Timothy to preach the word, to be ready in season and out of season, to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching because Christ Jesus will judge the living and the dead when he appears to finalize his kingdom. And I think this is something that you and I don't necessarily think of. It's not something that we dwell on and we contemplate, especially many times when it comes to those of our friends and family that do not know Christ. Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica that when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, he comes, listen to this, this is scripture, this is not my words, but he comes inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. You and I are being guarded from God's vengeance from being inflicted upon us. We need to understand what God's judgment and wrath entails. And I'm sorry, but I believe that many times the church does not understand the wrath of God. Scripture tells us that the wages of sin is what? Death. Thank you. Jesus describes this wage in Matthew when he says, At the end of the age, when it will be revealed, the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into what? The fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells the story of a rich man who dies and go to Hades. In anguish, this man cries out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. Why? For I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received good things. Lazarus in like manner, bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. The one who went through suffering is now guarded and being kept. The one who enjoyed the good things of life is not being guarded, but is being punished. He goes, and besides this, between us and you is a great chasm that has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to there may not be able. No one may cross From here to us. Then the rich man said, I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they come into this place of torment. You and I, as exiles, elect exiles in this world, are being kept and guarded from God himself. And as they in this rich man understands that his brothers are not so, so I'd ask for you to take a moment and just think: between your loved ones, your friends, the people that you do life with, the people you work around, the neighbors, are they being kept and guarded, or are they themselves will be object of God's vengeance? Someone said something to this effect. I can't remember, so I'll paraphrase. He said. The one thing that keeps the church from evangelizing is the fact that they do not understand sin. I believe that's so much true. We ought to be ones who witness and share the gospel so that they too may be kept and guarded in that day. Mark writes in his gospel that hell is a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And let me tell you, in contrary to what the world says and unfortunately to what many churches and pastors may tell you, hell is real. Hell is a place of constant, conscious, eternal torment. In addition, John the Apostle writes in Revelation 20 that the end of age, that the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. The death, Then death and Hades were thrown in the lake of fire. This is the second day death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now listen, the lake of fire is the final residing place, not resting place. The lake of fire is the final residing place of all those that have not repented of their sins and put their trust in the works of Christ for salvation. In one of the greatest sermons ever given, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, Jonathan Edwards describes the wrath of God against all of humanity. He rightfully said that there is nothing that keeps wicked men at one moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. And if I may, I'd like to give you some excerpts from that sermon because I believe it's so apropos to today as it was then. Listen to what he tells his congregation. He says, the wrath of God is like great waters that are dammed up for the presence. So you can think of a dam in which waters are just uh, rising up and we can think of that these last few weeks as the waters have risen here in Southern California. He says they increase more and more and they rise higher and higher till an outlet is given. And the longer the stream is stopped, the more rapid and mighty is its course when once it is let loose. He goes on to say if God should only withdraw his hand from the floodgates, it would immediately fly open. And the fiery floods, the fierceness and the wrath of God would rush forth with inconceivable fury and would come upon us with omnipotent power. And if your strength were 10,000 times greater than it is, yea, 10,000 greater than the strength of the stoutest, sturdiest devil in hell, it would be nothing to withstand it or endure it. This, my friend, is the wrath of God. He goes on to say that the bow of God's wrath is bent and the arrow is made ready on its string and justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow. And it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. What word images he's given here. But this is the wrath of God of God. He goes on to say the God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked, he says. His wrath towards you burns like a fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast in the fire. This is the God that you and I are kept and guarded from. He is of pure eyes in the bear than you have in your sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful, venomous serpent is in yours. This is the wrath of God. You have offended him infinitely more than ever, than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince. And yet it is nothing but his hand. That holds you from falling into the fire every moment. It is to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell the last night that you were suffered and awake again in this world. After you closed your eyes to sleep. And there is no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose this morning. But that God's hand has held you up. There is no other reason to be given why you have not gone to hell since you've been sitting here this morning in the house of God, provoking his pure eyes by your sinful, wicked manner of attending his solemn worship. Yes, even us here this morning can come in a sin nature, in a sin-saturated passions. Yea, he writes, there is nothing else that is to be given us as a reason why you and I should not at this very moment drop down into hell. My friends, this is the wrath of God. You and I are guarded and kept by God's power from himself. His own wrath and judgment. Yet there is hope for those that are in Christ Jesus. Amen? This is what he's saying. Peter promises that the children of God are being guarded by God's power against God's vengeance and wrath. Peter early in his ministry told the Gentile centurion Cornelius that God had commanded us to preach the gospel and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. He writes to him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in Jesus receives the forgiveness of sins through his name. This is the reason that we praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, in mercy, God has promised that all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the sons and children of God who were born not of the blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God, guarded and kept by the power of God. Scripture tells us that God has also delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom... We have redemption and the forgiveness of sin. Turn your eyes, if you would, to the monitor real quickly as the writer of Hebrews informs us in his letter. It is appointed for man to die once. And after that comes the judgment. You and I must recognize this. This is the motivation for you and I to share with those that do not know Christ yet. But look at so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sons of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin. For when he comes to next, it is for judgment, but also to save those who what? Who are eagerly waiting for him. We are kept and guarded from this. And this is our message that should go to our friends and our loved ones. You too can be kept and guarded for this reason. We can praise God in suffering because we are guarded from the wrath of God. Our suffering is not the result of God's wrath towards us. That is why Paul can write in Romans 8 that there, that those who are children of God, there's no condemnation. To those who are in Christ Jesus. The problem here, now listen, as I change gears for just a moment. The problem is, is that too many Christians today are living as if God is mad at them. They are walking on eggshells, waiting for the next shoe to drop when they fail in their obedience. And if you are like me, you have failed even today. Many are paralyzed in their service to God and to man because they have a misguided fear of God. Many of us are enslaved to this type of fear of God, maybe because of our own relationship with our parents, to our fathers, because they reacted to it this way or because of people in our family or at work or so on and so forth. And we expect God to work in the same way. But the reason why you and I can rejoice even when we're suffering in our struggle and our fight with sin is because we are being kept and guarded. Hebrews, if you would, turn real quickly to Hebrews chapter 12. In Hebrews chapter 12, we see here that you and I must understand the difference between God's wrath for sinners and the chastisement for those who are in Christ. See, the believer, when you suffer here, and Peter will tell this, and we'll get to this a little bit. We do not suffer as sinners do. We do not suffer as the world does, nor for the same reasons. In Hebrews chapter 12, look at verse 6. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for that discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. You see, discipline confirms our profession. It shares that our confession is true. Sanctification, your becoming more like Christ, will come through suffering. We'll speak more on this later in 1 Peter. Pastor Milton Vincent sums up the truth of scriptures correctly in his little booklet, The Gospel Primer. When he writes, In saving me, God also justified me, made me right with God. And being justified through Christ, I now have a peace with God that will endure forever. God will also allow his future and present wrath against me to be completely propitiated or satisfied by Jesus who bore himself upon the tree." So in other words, as I sin in my Christian life, God's wrath is now removed. It is no longer need to continue. Consequently, God now only has love and compassion and the deepest affection for me. And this love, and this is so important, listen to this, my friends, and this love is without any a mixture of wrath whatsoever. Now, you and I have a hard time understanding this. Either as husbands and wives or as parents, or just as children. We love, but our love is always going to be mixed with some type of anger or some type of wrath, is it not? In times in which they disappoint us, in times that we fail each other, there's always going to be that mixture. But in God's eyes, even after we had come Christians, even after our baptism and, and coming into a Covenant Community Church, when we fail, when we sin, God does not look on you with wrath. He does not look on you with anger. God doesn't look at you and say, I have a score to settle. And I would encourage you as parents and husbands and wives, we need to have that type of mind of God. It's difficult, but this is what he tells me. God does not look at me like that but you and i expect him to do so because that's how we would but god always looks upon me and treats me with gracious favor always working all things together for my ultimate and eternal good god's grace abounds me even through trials and because i'm a justified one he writes he subjugates every trial and he forces it to do good unto me When I sin, God's grace abounds to me all the more as he graciously maintains my justified status as a child of God. When I sin, mark this down, God feels no wrath in his heart against me. Peter says you need to praise God because of his great mercy. We are being kept and guarded from his wrath and from his anger and his judgment. Amen? We praise God for his mercy in guarding us from judgment and wrath. So secondly, not only are we guarded from God himself and his wrath and judgment, but we're also guarded from Satan, the enemy of God. The Apostle John informs us that the reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Satan is a defeated enemy, one that seeks to destroy our character and to draw us away from God. Peter warns us that he's our adversary, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking to devour. But we can also resist him, as James writes resist the devil, and he will flee from you. But you must understand is that Satan seeks to destroy you. He seeks to paralyze you in loving God and loving your neighbors. And many times the reason why you are not loving God and loving your neighbors, including your spouses and your children, and so on and so forth, is because Satan is either paralyzing you or trying to destroy them in your mind. I've said this many times. The enemy in your life, The one who is causing the suffering in your life is not your spouse. It is not your children. It's not your boss or employee. Now, it may be manifested through some of their actions, but we understand that Scripture tells us that we wrestle not against what? Flesh and blood, but against spiritual, spiritual powers and spiritual battles. You and I must understand this. Satan seeks to destroy your life. He cannot take your salvation, but yet we see that we are kept and guarded even in the midst of these trials. Turn, if you would, to Job chapter 1. I won't apologize for going to many scriptures today because I believe in scripture you'll find more truth than anything that I'm going to say of my own mere opinion. But in Job chapter 1, we see how God guards and keeps his children. Job chapter 1, famous portion of scripture. I think it's right there before the book of Psalms in the Old Testament. Look at that first chapter. And in this familiar passage, we see Satan's desire to harm the witness of Job who worshiped God. That's what he wants. He wants to harm the witness of Job. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from whenever you come, Satan answers, from going to and fro the earth, from walking up and down it. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blame, and upright man who fears God, or a blameless, and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. But look at verse 9. And Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him? Are you not keeping and guarding him and his possessions, having a house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased the land. But I tell you, stretch out your hand, touch all that he has, and he will curse you to his face. What is he saying, stop keeping and guarding Job, and you'll see what Job is made of. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has in your hands, only against him do not stretch your hand. So Satan went out from the presence. So God says, okay, you know what, you're right. I won't guard and keep all of his possessions, but I'm just going to guard and keep his persons. Everything else is in your hands. You all know the story. He loses his camels, he loses his sheep, he loses his workers, he loses his children. Now look at the next chapter. We see that after he fails to cause Job to sin, because we see there at the end of that chapter 1 that Job does not curse God, that he returns with another challenge in verse 3. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man? So he goes on in the same thing. And then Satan answered him in verse 4, Skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to his face. The Lord said, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. So now God comes and says, Okay, I'm just going to guard and keep his soul and his life. His physical, you can touch him now. At the end of Job, we read that the Lord, though, restored the fortunes of Job that the Lord gave to Job twice as much as he had, and that the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than the beginning, here we see a vivid picture of God protecting and guarding his child from Satan. He does give some leeway, but in the end, he's still guarding and keeping that eternal salvation. In John chapter 16, Jesus tells the disciples, I have said these things to you, that in me you have my peace. In the world you may have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus prays to the Father for his disciples' protections in John chapter 17 when he says, While I was with them, I kept them in their name, all that you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, Judas. But I am coming to you, and that these things I speak in the world, that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Listen to this. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, Jesus says to the Father, but that you keep them from the evil one. We are being kept by God's power from the evil one. They are not of the world, just that in the world, sanctify them in truth. You and I should praise God for his mercy in guarding us from Satan's desire to destroy our witness. And if you're like me, that's pretty easy to do. I can just get on the freeway and see my witness go pretty quickly. There's many things that are our triggers. But I want to share with you that he says to praise him even in the midst of suffering. For the suffering, the pain, the struggles that you and I face are those things that cause us to praise God and to be endured in strength. Thirdly, we're guarded from ourselves. We are sometimes our own worst enemies, are we not? Many times we are like the dog who returns to his own vomit. We are tempted by our desires, and too often we return to our old way of living. Hence that's why Paul writes to the church of Corinth who struggled with this. He says, "Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God?" He goes on to say, "Do not be deceived, neither the sexual immoral, the idolaters, adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality or thieves, revelers, these people will not inherit the kingdom of God." But again, you see that great word but, and some were some of you but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit Of our God. You and I many times have to be guarded from ourselves because we forget who we are. We forget who we belong to. I've shared this kind of phrase before when our kids were young and we would go out somewhere and and it was a place where they could kind of safely go and kind of be their own people. We would always say, Remember whose child you are. What were we trying to tell them? Remember who you belong to. Remember the things that we taught you remember our values and things and when you're out there even when we're not around live out those qualities this is what he's saying remember whose child you are the apostle paul could i personally identify with this struggle look on the screen here when paul testifies i do not understand my own actions i do not do what i want but i do the very thing i hate have you ever had that phrase in your mind I know that nothing good dwells in me, Paul says. That is in my flesh. For I have a desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry out. I I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Without raising your hand, have you ever felt that way? Have you ever woken up in the morning and just say, look at yourself in the mirror and say, I just can't do this? Or come home late at night, look in the mirror... And say, I can't believe I just did that. can't believe I just participated in that. Paul goes and declares, I find it to be a law when I want to do right. Sin lies close at hand. He laments, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin and death that dwells in my members. He ends by crying out, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? He tells Timothy that he is the chief of sinners. Yet he fully understands that God has made him a new creation. For he will write, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And that God, through Christ, has reconciled us to himself. He understands, but yet he knows what is true. I need to be kept and guarded from my own desires and from my own passions that war against me. You and I struggle with sin in the here and now. You and I are protected from falling out of favor with God or from losing our salvation. God works in restraining us from the excesses of our own sinful passions. And understanding that in itself has led me to pray, not only, Lord, do not lead me into temptation, but Lord, will you restrain me from myself today? And I would encourage you, pray that. Lord, restrain me from the evil and the passions that are within me. It will change the way that you look as you walk through the door. It will change the way when you consider the way your passions and your desires flame up inside you. You and I should praise God for his mercy in guarding us from our own self-destructive desire to abandon God. And once again, I find myself further from where I want to go and from where we are today. And so with that, what I want to do is I want to stop for just a moment and come here, and we'll just mark that as our place this morning, is that you and I need to realize that our eternal salvation is being secured by God as he keeps us and guards us by his own power. Let me ask you, is that in your heart this morning? In what ways are you struggling with that today? Next week I want to answer the question a little bit more about losing our salvation because I think that's something that many of us struggle I want us to understand how we are being guarded and kept and how we're being sealed and protected and prayed by the Trinity. I want us to go on and look a little bit more at what Christ wants us to do. But for today, I think we're at that place where we should just pray and consider, Father, work in my heart. How can I trust that you're keeping and guarding me for our salvation that one day will be revealed with every head bowed and every eye closed, As the worship team makes its place quietly up, I would ask yourself to pause, to consider, to pray and respond to the Holy Spirit's work. Are you trusting that God is keeping and guarding you through faith for a salvation that will be revealed in the last day? In what way do you need to give thanks for being guarded from God himself? from being guarded from Satan, and from regarding from your own passions and sin. Father, I pray that you would do that work in our hearts. Father, there is so much in this world that can keep us from worshiping and praising you. There are many things, Father, that can distract us from how you have shown mercy to us, not only in the past, but also in the present. Father, there are so many ways in which it blinds us to your mercy that is going to be given to us in the future. Our suffering, our trials, our struggle with sin can be so daunting, Father, that it blinds us to any reality than that of what the pain is. Father, I pray that your word through the Holy Spirit will cut through that like a flame through butter. And Father, that we may see that one of the things you've called us to is to praise you even in the midst of suffering, in the midst of pain. As we live in a world that's hostile to our faith, give us strength, remind us that we are being kept and guarded by the power of God. The very one who said in the beginning, let there be and created all things. The same power that said rise from the dead is being kept and guarded in our own lives as well. We thank you for this. In your name we pray. Amen.
0: We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangefilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org.